Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I am editor Drew Cherry, joined today by executive editor John Fiorillo, as well as correspondent John Evans, who you'll hear from in just a moment. Okay, a very, very busy week in seafood. Just a couple of the headlines. Clothing giant Patagonia launched another broadside against the salmon farming industry, this time in Iceland with a new film and a new campaign. The M&A advisors handling the American seafood sale may be closer to finding a buyer for the Pollock giant, but a lot of questions remain about whether or not and how that deal might go through. And then another big M&A, MSD, a division of pharmaceutical giant Merck acquired aquaculture health giant Ilanco in a $1.3 billion deal, just the latest in the consolidation of the supply sector to the aquaculture industry. Later on in the show, we're going to speak with Brian Vinci. He's with the Freshwater Institute and an expert in land-based aquaculture. We're going to get a view of just what the future looks like for land-based salmon farming. But first, we're going to take you to a stretch of Chile's Route to Five, this 150-kilometer stretch between the towns of Cabrero and Victoria in Chile is one of the most violent for truckers moving salmon. Now, John Evans, who's joining us, did a fantastic look into the violence in Chile and these robberies, uh, what they mean in terms of financial losses, and what the industry is doing to combat it. John, tell us about salmon truck robberies. Yeah, well, it's kind of uh, come to light with uh, the trade body Salmon Chile having released figures before Christmas, which was published in the Chilean press, press I should say, showing uh, that nearly 139 armed robberies took place between um, between 2019 and November 2023, the start of 2019, that is. And it's difficult to say. I mean, is this is this the uh, thin end of the wedge, so to speak? Because uh, it's not clear whether these 139 robberies are the ones that have just been reported. It, it's, it's you know, it's believed that many more actually have gone unreported. And while you know the sort of losses from these uh, robberies are around 22 million. Um, you know, they said not only this time, but in the past that uh, they could be losing as much as $80 million uh, a year from these kind of incidents. Now, what do we know about the, the robbers and how they uh, how they move this salmon and where it ends up going after they steal it? Well, it has been said that uh, a lot of the a lot, if not all um, of the salmon sold in the south um, of Chile, or large quantities, shall we say, uh, have been stolen. It's difficult to know what is um, um, legal and what isn't in some cases. Um, it's, I mean, the, the police have had some successes um, tracking it down, but they, they seem to be the exception uh, rather than uh, the rule. So it might be sold roadside markets or, as you said, making its way even into possibly legitimate grocery stores, but mixed in with uh, with uh, with product that's been legally obtained. Yeah, and even um, illegally processed, uh, believe, believe it or not, um, uh, the police have uncovered 
um, you know, quantities of uh, salmon which have been Ill illegally processed, not by the mainstream um, companies that we uh, report about every day. So, all right, tell us a, a little bit about how the industry is reacting, because, you know, I was looking in our archive and it, these robberies have stretched a a long way back. I mean, this has been a an epidemic, you might say, for the industry. And so there has to be some efforts here uh, to combat it. Um, tell us what those are. Yeah, well, uh, one of the one of the, one of the uh, main things, uh, particularly uh, Kamenchaka, Salmonas Kamenchaka reports, is investing in anti-jammer systems. That's because uh, the the criminals are using jamming systems, believe it or not, to to uh, block uh, GPS systems. Um, and there's, there's all kinds of other things that they're introducing: geo reference systems, um, bulletproof vests, um, uh, all kinds, all manner of things, really. Um, to uh, uh, let's let's not forget they're in, investing in as not just in in Chile and other countries in South America in private security firms to uh, to help um, escort their. Uh, their produce as it leaves processing plants, right? And and that obviously is going to come with significant amount of cost. So what what are the executives in Chile telling you about what this is um, adding to or taking away rather from their bottom line? Yeah, they're not really saying uh, they're being a bit coy about what's happening to profitability, but they are saying that um, it is increasing costs and particularly. Um, insurance costs um it's difficult to know I, i'm not sure they publish um every quarter or every year um items like that in their balance sheet maybe they maybe they put it down to other things because they don't want to they don't want it to be made um, public now some of it you know even uh, once it's stolen some of it's making its way you know onto the water actually the chilean navy made a, a bust um, on uh, on a vessel that had more than 7.5 metric tons of salmon. So, I mean, this is a pretty sophisticated operation finding a lot of different markets for, for their stolen fish. Yeah, I mean, it's unclear from the uh, the Navy report, but it was, uh, the gang was disrupted off the island of Chiloe, off uh, Chile's western coast, which is accessible uh, by ferry or boat in this case. They were carrying it on a on a small uh, on a small uh, boat. Um, it, wh whether it was processed, because there is a, there is there are pr a processing facilities uh, in Kayong itself. As you remember, a few years ago there were uh, other um, actions taken. I think it may have been, uh, if I remember rightly, linked to the uh, the bus fare process, which which protests which started in Santiago and spread throughout the rest of the country. And uh, Chiloé uh, uh, itself became uh, cut off. But um, so, yes. So how is the government of Chile? Obviously, you know, you mentioned in the story that truckers unions uh, are paying uh, a lot more attention to it as well, because, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing, right, is there's human beings driving these trucks. And um, that kind of violence is um, is terrible for them and their and their families. And they're just trying to make a livelihood. What is the, the government said that? it will do to step in and, and do anything? Are they feeling any any pressure to act on this? It's, well, a, a commission of uh, congressional lawmakers was set up before Christmas 
to look into um, the effects and what is actually happening with uh, illegal salmon. So we'll um, we'll kind of have to wait to see what they, uh, you know, evidence they garner and what uh, conclusions they reach on that. But at least it shows uh, that they're taking it seriously. And the industry, of course, is putting a lot of pressure on them uh, to do so. Well, thank you, John. We'll keep up on the story and report it to our readers as we learn more. Land-based salmon farming, once a darling of investors in the stock market, has taken a hit over the past 18 months with fish losses at some of the market leaders, rising interest rates, and a general skepticism among backers, resulting in many, many suspended projects. The market leader, Miami-based Atlantic Sapphire, was at one point valued at around $1 billion on the stock market gives you a sense of just how much enthusiasm there was around this industry. But that's changed a bit. Joining us, we have the Freshwater Institute Director, Brian Vinci. And Brian, I guess in short, um, is the boom over in land-based? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me, uh, Drew and John, on the podcast. Um, I really enjoy listening to it. Uh, it, It's got a a great... uh, uh, information uh, packed uh, um, content uh, almost every episode. So, well, is the uh, boom over? Based on what we see that you guys report and other reports, and then also uh, the inquiries that that we get um, through, you know, advice for technology or questions about technology providers and those kinds of inquiries. I'd say we are definitely down from where we were five years ago. Um, If you want to think about when Atlantic Sapphire was building, I guess that was 2017-ish, 2018, the Florida facility, there definitely was a lot of excitement, a lot of interest from investors, um, you know, ringing us up, uh, sending us emails, and then, of course, the reporting that you guys did and all the projects that that were being planned that honestly uh, really never happened. So we're probably down to um, a more realistic set of projects that are slowly developing. Um, And uh, I would say if you're measuring the boom in terms of excitement and news stories um, and inquiries, yeah, it's over. So what do you think had investors or uh, projects themselves kind of – uh, turning away was just the the overall economy and how that tracked and in interest rates and in the in the high capex costs uh, or were there other things was it just sort of a dose of of reality? Honestly, Drew, I, I think um, the latter is what you just said. That's a great way to put it. It's a, it's a dose of reality, and and you guys know from my uh, letters back to you to Interfish. Um, that uh, I'm very much a realist, and um, I think it's less about interest rates and and more about um, understanding that there are significant risks in the land-based sector, and uh, you have to address all of those risks, uh, you know, including things like the ability to raise capital, uh, construction delays, and construction cost overruns, and then once you're operating, you know, the ability for the systems to perform and the fish to perform and and actually, you know, turn a profit on the sales. It's, there's a lot of risks in the sector to have a successful business. And I think early on, it was just like any new thing. There's a lot of excitement about it. And, you know, this is a great way to address some of the uh, sustainability issues for wild fisheries, you know, p- bringing the food production on land and 
um, containing waste and maybe lower carbon footprint and all that stuff. And I just think it was after five years, just the reality set in and, and seeing how hard these projects are to actually get up and running successfully. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody who's had a really easy go of it. Can you? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, it's. I think that's the challenge is that I think a lot of, as you said, a lot of excitement. It ticks a lot of the sustainability boxes as part of the circular economy and the, the interest in that. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, Brian, when you, you say that, you know, along with this dose of reality, and I think people often forget sort of the big picture looks great, but then ultimately you have to grow fish and that is not easy. And it's certainly not easy in RAS. Um, but I'm curious just from, from, um, this kind of rise and maybe plateau of interest, what problems have been solved? I mean, what what can we say has gotten uh, better over the course of, let's say, the last five to 10 years just with the, the technology? Yeah. Um, let me take just a, a little bit wider uh, view of the question and say <clears throat> just identifying some of these uh, risks by seeing where other companies have failed is actually advancing um, for uh, for the, for newer projects, right? So they can learn from where other projects had issues. For example, we we'll just take a couple of projects in Maine that uh, or, or that had issues with um, local opposition, right? And uh, if you're someone sitting on the sidelines thinking about maybe investing or getting into a project, and you see a project have tremendous local opposition and have to go through the courts and have to go through state permitting and and really see how that that's a risk to any project, you know, fish farming or, you know, making sneakers. Um, so they would, you see that and say, oh, well, I need to, I need to address that upfront and I need to do a better job of that. And I actually think the Kingfish company saw some of that happening in Maine. And, and even though they had selected a site in Maine, they did a lot of homework upfront to address that risk. Now on the technology side, um, so you're, you're talking to somebody who's, you know, engineer and, and worked on the technology or working on the technology for my entire career. Um, we have definitely been progressing the technology as we go along. How technology is implemented is, is really, I think, what you're, you're getting at, which is <clears throat> are people doing a better job implementing technology that will keep fish alive, have good fish health and welfare growth and ultimately sales? And I would like to think that the farmers out there are are learning, uh, not cutting corners where maybe they would have in, in the beginning. Because, you know, everyone's pressed for capital expenses, you know, they have to raise money to pay for everything. And, well, maybe you can leave this out of a project or maybe you won't have to uh, chill water or you won't have to treat your effluent or, you know, you, you want to, you're trying to you know thread that needle and uh, do just what you need to do to get something up and running because, you know, it's a long time to cash flow in the salmon world, right? Two years at minimum. And um, I think what people, I hope what people are learning is that cutting those corners is not going to make it. It's just, it's not going to get you there because the negative consequences of, of maybe leaving something out um, will, will have a tremendous detrimental effect on the entire enterprise. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And, it brings me to the next question, Brian. Um, 
you know, we we talk when we talk land base, it's predominantly salmon, and and we understand all the issues with the salmon guys, but there are other species being raised using RAS technology in land base facilities, shrimp, for example, yellowtail, some sea bass, some striped bass, turbot, uh, as well, and. Um, can you tell us a little bit, can you kind of compare the the prospects for those species versus what we've seen as largely a failure, at least, you know, to, to a large degree for salmon? Sure, John. Um, but let's not call it a failure just yet. Um, <laughs> okay. okay. I got ahead of myself. Sorry. <laughs> Um, no, that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, of course, uh, you mentioned a bunch of the species uh, that are being grown in RAS, even in the U.S., that companies like Ideal Fish in Connecticut have been uh, growing sea bass now and have had, actually had to make changes to their uh, setup to, you know, to meet their production. And, you know, they're doing well now or they appear to be doing well now. And um, you didn't mention tilapia, but, of course, the, the largest land-based um fish farm in the U.S. is uh, Blue Ridge Fisheries in Virginia, and they've been around for a long time growing uh, whole live tilapia for sale to uh, markets in New York City and Toronto and Washington. Um, uh, I also just want to uh, mention that eel, and, that, and that's a really interesting one, is uh, Sarah Rademacher up in Maine growing um, uh, eel, uh, seems to be doing well. You know, that was a project born out of a lot of, I think, uh, sweat equity and and now raising money, and, and that's a great thing. Um so I look at all the various species that could be grown and I always think, okay, what's the seed stock supply? Like it's one of these most fundamental questions. And I, that's one of the reasons why I think salmon, um, you know, dominated early on. And there is a great domesticated um, seed stock supply for Atlantic salmon, uh, whether it's, you know, internal to some of these companies like Movi or, you know, Stofisker or Benchmark Genetics, excuse me. Um, has been running breeding programs for Atlantic salmon for many years. They, you know, have uh, good genetic selection techniques, and they're providing, um, you know, eggs that maybe even address very specific things that could be beneficial, whether it's in land-based or in the net pens. So, um, you know, that's why I think that a lot of that excitement and startup went to the salmon because you know there's great seed stock supply now there's good seed stock supply in uh, trout and the hema seafood and norway is taking advantage of that there's good seed stock supply in uh, european sea bass um, there are hatcheries in europe that provide very small fry for um, shipping around the world and, and that's successful um, but when i look at the industry in general where i'm trying to get to is uh, what i think is actually going to be um, a really uh, has a real great potential and likely to be where um, we see more uh, interest uh, investment and startups is is in um, is in shrimp uh, growing grass a uh, growing shrimp and grass um, like homegrown is doing uh, down in Florida I recently visited I guess just a couple weeks ago and um, you know I can clearly see uh, the benefits um, both on you know the, the ability to keep capex down keep opex down and um, and grow something that has a really quick turnover, 90-day cropping, um, really gets you to cash flow a lot faster than um, 24 months. So I do think that you know there it's nice to have the variety of species, and that's great. We see some of that, uh, but in the U.S. especially, you know, you have to do a lot of consumer education if you want to start 
uh, selling uh, fish they're not familiar with. And tilapia folks know that really well. Um, I think shrimp is kind of a, almost a no-brainer. Uh, the U.S. market accepts it. They understand it. They eat it. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, John, it's the number one seafood consumed in the U.S. So so I actually, as I see that some of the large shrimp um, companies like CP Foods get into this area with homegrown, um, I see that area maturing actually a little bit faster. And um, and companies like Homegrown Shrimp of Florida, you know, may be providing the seed stock supply for um, additional farms. And that's kind of a, an exciting model. Yeah, because that ability to flip your your inventory, so to speak, or your production every 90 days versus salmon trout, roughly, you know, 18 months to two years. I mean, the longer the longer that time period, the more chance for something to to go wrong right uh, Great I mean, point. yeah but so that brings me to another question you know uh, when when salmon exploded uh atlantic sapphire talked about you know obviously this massive scale operation but the ones we're watching that are doing well are still small um thousand metric tons to the my question is Will salmon all should salmon stay small in terms of production, five thousand metric tons or less, and abandon the idea of, you know, thirty thousand metric tons or whatever number you want to throw out there? Yeah, uh, great question. I, and I'm, you know, um, really just on the on the side. I'm I'm not uh, someone out there actually. Uh, growing uh, massive amounts of salmon every day, although we, you know, we we do run a small operation here, very small. Um, I think the answer to that is no. You, you don't have to uh, not scale it up. I mean, I think scaling up will still have benefits, but jumping to a huge scale right off the bat um, has tremendous risk. And um, you know, you have to have something, a model uh, that's working well that you feel is replicable and scalable. Um, and and um, before you start making the, the leap. So I look f- favorably upon these companies that are doing, you know, smaller uh, system setups that can be replicated. Um, and that replication would then take advantage of the economies of scale um, that would allow them to build out to 30,000 or 60,000 tons. So, and, and I do think most of the technology providers understand that. I don't think this is uh, secret sauce or, you know, or magic. Um, you have to have something that you can prove out that will work. And um, it's at a scale that is makes sense to replicate. When I say replicate, I don't mean like uh, have six tanks in a system and just make them bigger. I mean, have a system that is large enough so that it is scalable, that just having replicates of that system makes sense and that you could actually get to scale. And that's where you see, that's where you will see um, unit price uh, economies of scale. So, you know, the, the challenge with having this large scale is that when there are problems, the losses can be massive. They can be significant. And just going back to the tech and going back to um, some of the uh, issues that have sort of bedeviled land-based salmon, uh, at least, how are we on issues like uh, oxygen? Uh, how advanced have you come on that? I'm also going to ask a course about uh, off flavors and geosmine. Maybe you can explain that because it gets a little bit technical, but those two issues seem quite quite big or have been quite big. Are we closer to solving those? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
some of the research that we do at the Freshwater Institute, um, some of our scientists, John Davidson on the off-flavor issue, and and some of our work in on the engineering technology side, you know, definitely are advancing those um, and improving efficiencies. But I want to come back to something you started out with, Drew, which is you said, okay, you're running the scale presents a, a risk because um, you know before you get to harvest, if you have an upset or a, a wa- inability to control water quality, um, you know you can have catastrophic losses. And and absolutely, that is something that. Everybody who's going to be jumping in, investment operator, owner, um, should go in with um, with open eyes on that, and that's why I think this move to build essentially something that's replicable and scalable, a module of sorts that's large enough so that it makes sense to scale up without having to go to some, some massive infrastructures. It just a scale such that even if you were to lose or have a, an upset in system like that, it wouldn't be catastrophic to the business. So this is actually just a straight out risk analysis, you know, widgets analysis, like how many things do you break your entire uh, harvest up into and and how is that staggered so that if you did lose the system or you had an upset that it's not catastrophic to the entire operation. So um, I think even though that's not necessarily, I mean, it's based on technology for RAS, it's just simple, um, you know, risk assessment and risk mitigation. And that also goes through through things like, you know, backup generators and, and things like oxygen. So you mentioned oxygen. You know, are we getting better in um, efficiency in the use of oxygen? I, I would say that a lot of the work in oxygenation was done in the 1980s, uh, both in Europe and the U.S., uh, the, the part that I'm aware of anyways. And you know, you can achieve relatively good oxygen efficiencies. You know, how much of the oxygen that you actually add gets into the water typically is in this 70% um, to 90% range just with, you know, basic technologies. Um, we're, we're still seeing those technologies in use in, uh, in technology setups and RAS designs now, but there are um, advancements being made and in improvements in some of that um, uh, things like uh, I'm not actually I don't want to I don't want to uh, say that I understand what's going on with the nano bubble um, technology but apparently you know they have also have very good tr- oxygen transfer efficiencies you know 80 and 90 percent and and there are ways to to improve your oxygen use um, even greater so um, you know that that Technology was developed uh, quite a while ago, and I think, you know, there's still a little bit of work to be done there. Um, And then you mentioned on off flavors. Off flavor is super important because, you know, you go through 24 months at salmon or 18 months with trout, and and both of those fish tend to have a little bit more fat in them, and and fat will tend to accumulate um, these uh, compounds in the water that... uh, bacteria produced that have a musty or off flavor to musty flavor to them. So it's particularly important in fish that have some uh, fat in their flesh, like salmon and trout, that you make sure that you do a good job monitoring for off flavor uh, in the product before it goes out to uh, the wholesale or out to the restaurant. So that's <clears throat> super important. And we we actually been, I think, out front on this really well, coming up with um, uh, standard operating practices that can be used to make sure that uh, fish that are going out the door don't have off flavor just through th- some simple um, processes uh, like depuration, which is really taking the fish out of the ras and then um, uh, holding them for a bit in a clean water system and 
and optimizing that so that uh, you know it's minimal days. And in our case, we um, we have an SOP that takes us about six days to just ensure we have very low um, uh, off flavor that there's no musty taste to the fillet when it's processed. Um, and we we continue to work on that. In fact, John Davidson, one of our research scientists, has been working with um, both uh, USDA um, through the Sustainable Aquaculture um, Systems uh, for Salmon Project and with the uh, uh, Binational Israeli Agricultural Research uh, um, Funding Agency with uh, Yap Van Rien in um, University over there. And and they're all, we're all trying different things. And and what we're finding is, well, um, we always thought that you didn't have to feed uh, fish during uh, the purging process, that adding the, the feed um, to the systems where the fish were being held would have a negative effect on that. And John recently uh, was looking at some really interesting data that shows us, well, that may not be the case. And you don't necessarily have to lose a couple percent of, of body weight uh, while the fish are being um, depurated. And and there are um, also some new technologies that have been advanced, uh, things like advanced oxidation to try and remove off flavor from a normal operating rest where the fish would actually be grown for um, during their lifetime and, and ways to keep the off flavor down. What I'll tell you is that here at our place, we are unique in that our water coming in um, doesn't have any off flavor. And then for whatever reason, our system design um, does not seem to generate those off flavor compounds. And I think that's uh, partly effect of the water and partly effect of the type of recirculating technology that we use. And so for us to do this experiments on off flavor is actually really difficult for John. And so he has to uh, come up with ways to create off flavor. Um, but what that tells us though, is that there are practices that um, we still need to identify within RAS technology that will keep the off flavor compounds that the bacteria generate, keep them low because we, our systems already do that. Um, so either, either if you have an identical system, of course, that would work, I suppose. But um, we're still looking at things like the microbiome and how mature the microbiome is and uh, how that affects the compounds that you mentioned, geosmin and, and uh, methyl isoborneal. Brian, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the state of Maine. Um, you referenced... Um, community pushback in in many places and probably no more so than in Maine. Uh, tough permitting processes, again, no more so in Maine. But Maine started out, It's it was such a wonderful story about, um, you know, several companies planning to build these land-based salmon operations in Maine. And one by one, they, they've either, you know, receded or given up uh, you know, in some form or fashion, what's your prognosis for Maine? Is is will we see a recovery, a resurgence there, or is that over? Do you think, John? I I knew you'd bring me into this one. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> only because we've gone back and forth on this. Um, I I I, uh, I don't think it's over for Maine, and I think that they had. Um, uh, really one big upset there and and I can I, I can say that because if you look at American unagi which is Sarah Sarah Rademacher's um, eel uh, ras and you look at the Kingfish company um, they're still progressing in Maine of course the American unagi is already there and producing and Kingfish is there and, and yes they're producing but it's at the university's uh, Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research 
But I, I think they did a lot of homework. Let me just say, I know they did a lot of homework um, at the Kingfish Company, working with the community. I think it was Joan Porter, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, they, they seem to have overcome uh, where other people may have um, may have fallen down there. So, uh, and Eric Heim, um, of course, who was originally uh, affiliated with uh, Nordic Aqua Farm, is now doing a project um, called Katad and Salmon, and, and he also seems to have wonderful community buy-in there. Um, we'll see how that project progresses. But I'm encouraged by the American Unagi project on the RAS for Eel, and um, the continued um, slow but uh, steady progress by the Kingfish Company and then Eric's willingness to to start another venture there in Maine with uh, Katata and Salmon. So I don't think it's over. Um, I think in many ways it's it's like the industry. It, it, there was a big uh, um, a bit of excitement and um, activity and announcements, and then the reality is set in, and now we're back to what I would say a more sustainable approach to project development and uh, land-based rest. So Atlantic Sapphire at one point was worth a billion dollars on the stock market, which is just absolutely stunning. Um, and it's fallen far, 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 far down below that now at this stage. Um, some companies have raised money on GoFundMe pages. Um What's the right investor for land-based salmon then? I mean, it 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 seemed like uh, there was all manner of people that were looking to to finance these projects. I mean, where do you think it's going to go? Is it going to be more public listing? Is it going to be maybe a little more uh, a little more scaled back, a little more realistic with smaller funders? Yeah. <laughs> so do you ever feel like there's something you really shouldn't talk about because you know nothing about? Um, so so <laughs> in, in, investment and, and public investment and shareholder uh, interest in, in land-based salmon companies. Now, um, I, I actually look at the large variety of the way projects um, have been capitalized. And you mentioned Atlantic Sapphire going on, I think, the also stock market. Um, and then, I, you know, there's these other ones I can think of, like uh, Matorka in Iceland, which is um, partly funded by local um, private investment in Iceland paired with Aquaspark investment. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, smaller projects uh, that have been got off the ground through uh, state and federal grants and then haven't been able to attract local investment. I think that's the American Unagi star story. And then um, just, you know, like Ideal Fish, a, a smaller, um, smaller private investors there. Um, looking at it in whole, um, I actually think that some of the commercial salmon farmers are in the best position to stand these projects up. Um, and, and I think specifically about the Greek project. Um, I think Greek, if I'm not mistaken, you guys can tell me, uh, having reported on it, but I think Greek is involved in the Proximar project. Is that correct? Correct. Well, the Greek family uh, yeah. is, yep. Yeah. And I know, of course, uh, they, they had, um, the Greek family was similarly, I think, involved in the project that was going to be on the east coast of Canada. And now I, th I saw an article um, that maybe you know, the company itself was going to be uh, getting involved in one or one of those projects, either the, the one in Japan, Proxima, or, or the one on the east coast. So I think those um, family 
uh, company, those you know family owned or family uh, primarily owned companies that are also publicly traded, of course, and are in a great position to lend the credibility um, to get a project funded. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a really small project. You know, I don't think it has to be a 500 ton project. Um, you know, they could put their heft and their credibility behind it to really stand it up at a you know a larger scale. Um, that said. Uh, we're not. I don't think we're quite there. We're Moe and, and Cermak and Greek, although Cermak, again, I think they're somewhat involved in the Proxima project through Mitsubishi. But um, putting that aside, I think these projects, you know, even in the 50 to 100 million range, that's a lot of capital to raise. And I was talking with an investor recently. He organizes workshops for folks um, in um, agriculture and agriculture startups. And he was uh, considering um, having aquaculture, land-based aquaculture, on the on the agenda, and we were talking about, you know, what are the challenges, and you know, really, it's a it's a lot of money. And when you compare uh, how much it takes to start up even a small project in land-based um, aquaculture, and compared to other startups, right, it it's uh, it's a lot. You know, it, it's a considerable amount of money. So. How people raise that, that's just the part where it's like, I'm not qualified to talk about this, right? How people raise that, I'm not an investment type, um, is a little bit beyond me. But, uh, you know, there are interesting uh, flavors of that, the different layer cakes using bonding or investment, or I'm not sure the public stock market makes a whole lot of sense, but that's just me. So, Brian, um, take us forward then a little bit. Maybe the boom is over in the sense of the kind of excitement, the external excitement, and maybe now we're back to a bit more of a practical view of what it's going to take to, to grow the sector. Take us five, 10 years out. Where are we with land-based aquaculture in terms of the size, in terms of just what the landscape might look like in the United States and, and globally? Just give us your view. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think the five to 10 year time frame is really hard to predict. It's the 25 to 30 year time frame that might be a little bit easier um, because I do expect that as more projects become successful and some of the risks are more clearly identified that strategies to address them and um, you know also piggybacking on the success of those that are successful uh, will actually grow the sector uh, considerably over time. And in the U.S., for example, I, I'm comfortable saying that, you know, half of the salmon uh, produced or consumed in the U.S. Uh, would be from land-based, um, you know, in that 30-year time frame. You know, out, I know it's a bit out there, right? You're not, you want to know 5 to 10. But I think, you know, as we go through this time from 5 to 10 all the way out there, I do think we're going to see um, a considerable portion of the U.S. market for salmon um, come from land-based. Now, in the 5 to 10-year range, I'm not so optimistic because we're, you know, it takes a while to, for these projects to develop. I mean, I could say, well, I expect, you know, 100,000 tons of, of salmon in five years. I'm not sure uh, would come from land base. I'm not sure we would get there. I mean, there, five years, you know, that that's barely enough time to get the project designed, permitted, built, and started, right? So... That five-year window, I'm not sure how much is actually going to change in the next five years. We may see some new projects, and we see other projects, maybe like Scoggin in um, uh, Scoggin salmon in Europe, um, you know, coming up and um, you know starting to hit maybe their metrics. I know Danish salmon is starting to hit their metrics, 
So I think, you know, we'll see some of these 1,000, 5,000 ton projects on the salmon side uh, start to check boxes, but that's not going to be, you know, 100,000 tons in five years. I'm not even sure it's going to be 50,000 tons in five years, but 10 years, I'm a little bit more optimistic because I do think we'll be going through that development curve and we will start to have some um, taking a portion of the market globally um, and producing it on land, especially on the salmon side. And then, you know, some of these new projects like the, the HEMA project in Norway on trout and um, and I know we haven't really talked about uh, non-RAS projects, but, you know, is uh, I want to say pure salmon. Is that the right? They're, they're like a hybrid in Norway. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they seem to have a pretty good success by simplifying their technology setup and using, um, you know, more water. It's unfortunately from the ocean, and but they have a wonderful site um, that allowed them to, I think, you know, be successful. And now, of course, they're looking to other places uh, around the world to site their next farm. Uh, but they have a very tight uh, search window. It has to have, you know, the, these really particular um, inputs that allow them to do what they do and, and be successful. So I think we'll still see some of those, but I don't expect those kind of projects to grow exponentially just because, um, you know, the the setup is, is extremely specific. So um, I'm not sure that answers your question. I do think we'll see some of these other um, uh, species uh, also start to grow, particularly I, I think shrimp. Um, is poised to have a, a, a nice entry into um, both Europe and Asia. Of course, there are already projects for land-based uh, shrimp in Asia. They're not huge, but they're, you know, testing that technologies in Europe. Of course, um, I think it's Ocean Loop. Uh, Bert Wecker's project is, you know, um, after a couple of years of piloting and coming up. And, and homegrown shrimp in, in the U.S. I think will actually be uh, a seed for further development of land-based uh, shrimp in the U.S. So I, I do see shrimp um, actually gaining some momentum. And uh, in the next five to 10 years, um, I would expect there's to be considerable production from um, land-based wrasse for shrimp. Brian, thanks so much for joining us and lending your insights. And uh, we'll certainly be checking in with you as time goes on. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, that wraps up this week's edition of the Interfish Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Remember that you can find us 24-7 on interfish.com. You can download our app there, and you can also go to Apple Podcasts or to Google Play and subscribe to the podcast so that when we publish a new episode, it goes right to your phone. Uh, also, just a reminder, if you will be at Seafood Expo North America in Boston on March 11th, we will be hosting our seafood leadership event there. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers, including Trident, Cargill, Whole Foods, Hy-Vee, Highliner, Slade Gordon, on and on and on. Um, go to intrafishevents.com. We hope to see you there. Talk to you next week.